We are continuing our series on confessional apologetics. Now, we are looking in particular, if you remember the first segment, it's actually the first sermon that turned into six sermons, was on the English Reformation. What gave rise to the confession that we adhere to today in our own denomination as Reformed Presbyterians. And then we spoke about the necessity of creeds and how important they were to the church and their various uses as the church utilizes them in ways to advance the cause of the kingdom of Christ. That was actually sermon number two that turned into six more sermons. So I'm not going to say that I'm going to get through this first sermon. Uh, Actually, I had to break it already in two, and I'm not sure that it's not going to be more than that. But we are starting today into the area that I think is so important. This is the theological foundation upon which we would learn to defend the faith of which we have been asked to give an expression of the hope that is within us. And so understanding what we believe is important, knowing what our confession says. Now, taking that under consideration, some chapters, this is going to play to the apologetics. That's about, it's going to be about probably a year long. So in order to keep this from being a five-year study on the confession as a kind of systematic theology, for there is a system of theology that is being taught in the confession, that pattern of sound words we've been speaking about. I'm going to speak to some of the more important doctrines, even though we may cover one, it may be just one sermon, it could be two sermons, it could be up to 10 sermons. Depending on the importance and development of how those are utilized in the defense of our Christian faith. Now, it's not a polemic that we're looking at, though we will study polemics when we get through this confession, and we will look at how we deal. Polemics means that you are actually attacking another system of theology to demonstrate its incompatibility to be believed. It is not consistent. It's really not a part of apologetics because apologetics is really developing a Christian philosophy of life, which we develop into a worldview so that when someone comes to us, as we're told in Peter, and they ask us, what is the hope that is within you? Why do you believe this? Why do you think this way? We can express to them the hope that we have not only based on a theological foundation of what Christ has done for us, but how that 
spills out into all of life. And so this is a very important time period of developing the very foundation. Here is our theological method. And the very first chapter we're going to look at is explaining the very principium of real reform theology. Now, our sermon text for this series is 2 Timothy 1, 13 through 14. Here, Paul writing says, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. That pattern of sound words. That's what we are seeking to achieve here now in this third section of this series. What is the pattern of sound words? And so I want us to keep this in mind because this is what we have been working toward to develop for 12 Lord's Days in covering this information. Shall we look to the Lord our God in prayer? Our Holy Father, we thank you and we praise you, O God, for the many blessings you have given to us, opening our eyes and minds to your word. Teach us, O God, by thy spirit. Direct our lives, our thinking, the way that we do everything to be in accordance with your holy word. We ask, O God, that you will bless us, encourage us, that we may give an answer for the hope that lies within us. Based according to that which you alone would recognize is an authoritative and truthful response to the demands of those who do not know you. We ask, O oh God, give us this power, this strength now Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to receive that which your word and spirit would teach us in this hour. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Now I want us to look at chapter one here in this first sermon of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter one is called Of the Holy Scripture. The divines begin in section one, which is all we're looking at today. And I will give a basic commentary on constructing what it is they were saying. And then I will give annotations, hopefully next Lord's Day, if I get through this, which is going to be more of kind of a running commentary on what the very principles that are, need to be considered and looked at 
that are being drawn out in this statement of our faith. But note, outside of Calvin's confession that he wrote for France, the Westminster is the only one that begins with the doctrine of Scripture. And we talked a little bit of why that's important. Because the question was, as we will review again, how shall we reform the Church of England to be as close to a church that is represented in the teaching of God's Word? That we may glorify God, and honor him and what we do. Well, let us begin with section one, and I want to just read it to you so that you have in mind what we're going to be dealing with. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable. Yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church, and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary. Those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. Well, I want to look at an exposition of this, the first chapter. We want to turn our attention to understanding the way that this chapter opens up as so fundamental, so fundamental to our faith. To understand how important the statement of the doctrine on revelation is written by the divines at the assembly because of the development of the perfecting of the doctrine and government of that church. So it is, we have this laid out as the very first section of this complete doctrine concerning the Holy Scripture. As Gordon H. Clark has written, when the reformers of the 16th century proposed to establish a church 
and order their own lives in a manner pleasing to God. They were forced to consider what God's requirements are. They needed a rule of faith and practice. The rule of faith which the reformers acknowledged was the scriptures alone. Their views were summarized in the Westminster Confession and Catechisms, unquote. Well, I believe that we could say clearly this is what the scripture means when it says we are to have the mind of Christ. The source of our theological method is not like the Roman Catholics where you have a negative theology that is stated very positively, which they say we have to first determine what God is not in order then to say what God is. No, we have God's own word declared to us by which we can know positively what God reveals concerning himself, his will, and salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. But we are to have that mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16, Paul says. Having the mind of Christ is knowing the scripture. It's exactly what it is. You want to have the mind of Christ, you've got to know the word of the living God. That's where we come together in unity. When we are all thinking alike, we are all having the mind of Christ in unity. We are following the pattern of sound words. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 9, Leading up to this statement in verse 16, listen, if you will, but as it is written, I has not seen, ear has not heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Now, this is not any kind of love, but The love he's speaking of is the one that Paul speaks in Romans 13.10. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. What does the law do? It keeps you, it represses you, it restrains you from violating your neighbor. And so it is, I have not seen, ear have not heard what God is going to reveal to us, especially with the clarity that's coming out in the New Testament revelation concerning that particular way with the specificity that had to be revealed and is not revealed unto the time period in which Christ comes He comes as the great prophet, and then he and the Father send the Spirit, and he leads holy men to write and to reveal to them 
that which is the great truth of God. Many things that were hidden. For example, we knew there was a Messiah. We knew that was a promise of the Old Testament. There was a Christ who was going to come, but we did not know it was going to be Jesus of Nazareth. And so there are a lot of things that were not as clear. Now hath been made clear to us. We're seeing things with new eyes, as it were. Not that it could not be seen in the Old Testament, where we know the Bereans were called more noble. Because as they looked at the Old Testament and listened to Paul, they were able to identify the gospel he preached was the gospel of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. On a task that I would say 98% of modern Christianity could not do, even if he had a road sign going through the Old Testament, they still would not see that. So they were more noble. They were studying. They knew the word of God. And this is the emphasis that is being given when we come to chapter 1. How important to know the mind of God. Having the mind of Christ, his son. Well, he goes on, verse 10. But God has revealed them to us how? Through his spirit. It has not come by the will of men, but the revelation of the truth of God concerning all these things, concerning Christ and the gospel that is being revealed to us. God has revealed through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things. Listen to it. The spirit searches all things. Meaning the spirit is the one who has gathered and brought the revelation as God, the Godhead hath determined. Now, there is no infinity in the aspect of epistemology with God. God never at any point does not know himself to the depth of his own knowledge. That would be a dangerous doctrine. Because basically you're accusing God of not knowing the depth of his own knowledge. So when something else would come new to the mind... God could say, well, I made a mistake and I didn't want to promise that. I've changed the promise. You got really shaky grounds to stand on at that point. But because God is, as we say, all comprehensive in his knowledge, he knows all things in one thought. There is nothing that has escaped him. There is nothing that he does not know. It's not based on any kind of foresight in the future. It is not, as some call it, a middle knowledge where contingent events are unknown to God. No, it is all comprehensive. 
all ordained by God to come to pass, which is why when he writes the word of God and he prophesies things that come to pass, and when he prophetically declares the things that we need to do and to believe, they are fully carried out to the nth degree. The end has been, the Bible says, ordained from the beginning at the beginning to the end. Nothing will take our God by surprise, which is why we trust him. He's the same as much as yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He never changes. He will always be the very ultimate nature of his being. This is the God that has revealed these things to us by his spirit. Spirit searches all these things. Yes, the deep things of God have been revealed by his spirit. And I love this part. I grew up in churches where I heard, well, you shouldn't split hairs on doctrine. Yes, you should. If the Spirit searches all things and he has revealed it to us that we may know these things, in particular, he's put it in the word. I don't know how many times people would say, this doctrine of predestination, oh, it's beyond our comprehension. Well, why did God put it in the word? To drive us buggy? Crazy? Oh, I've got to know, but I can't know. What well, doesn't mean I have an exhaustive comprehensibility of that doctrine. But it's been put there so I can know the very depths of the things the Spirit has given us. But it will never be exhausted by me. But it doesn't mean I am not required to know. Now he goes on, verse 11. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man. Well, a man knows himself, and he knows what he knows. Which is in him. His spirit, his soul, knows the depths of a man. Even so, no one knows the things of God, except the spirit of God. It is God's spirit that must reveal these things to us. It is God who brings the revelation of these things via the third person of the Godhead. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, not that concept of worldly wisdom and knowledge, that spirit of the age, as it were, we would say, but the spirit who is from God, that we might, here's the beauty of it, know the things that have been freely given, freely given to us by God. Think of the implication here. If God put it in the word, he wanted us to know it. Oh, but some of it is so hard. Yes, it is. The way of redemption is clear. 
And there are some things hard to know. But that means you just have to, as they say, roll up your sleeves and get to work. You've got to do the work. You've got to do the study. Oh, you need to know the skills to get you to that very thing. You know, when you were told to read a book and you're in the sixth grade, but you have not had any training in grammar and anything about the way we're to comprehend, understand the context of what we're reading. You can't read. Tell me. I didn't get most of that because I only had the look-say method of reading. I got to college and found out I couldn't read. Of course, I already knew that coming out of high school, but hey, I was trying to play everybody to get out of high school. And so I acted like I knew what I was doing, but the reality is I did not know. How important are those skills that are developed at a young age that allow you to read and comprehend and understand the context, the background, all of the structuring of the language, the way it grammatically it is set forth, what nouns and verbs and adjectives and all those things are for. Well, here he says, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. You're going to have to be able to understand how to interpret the word of God. Well, there's some things you've got to learn. And it's not a whole lot different from the way that we learn to read. But there are definitely nuances because it's coming out of a different language, translating to ours, that isn't got a strictly one-to-one translation and everything nor does the language have a particular type of emphasis. There are some things our language just will not do that is done in the very propositions of the word coming out of the Greek where the expression doesn't need as much of necessarily a verb or something or actually an exclamation point or a question, but the mood is set within the very sentence itself. You need to know these things. But the things of the book were given to us to know. Freely given. That we might have been freely given to us by God. If they were freely given, God wanted us to know them. He wanted us to search them out to develop our understanding. Then he says, verse 13, these things we also speak. Paul saying, these are the things that we speak about and we preach about. Not in words which man's wisdom teaches. We're not following the world. We're not following the wisdom of the world. We're following the wisdom that comes from God. 
So he says, not in which uh, the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Now, if you are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you're not going to know these things. You're going to say things like, well, that don't make any sense whatsoever. Of course not. You don't have the Spirit of God in you confirming these things or putting them into an understanding that is given spiritually to us. Oh, we can make all the connections and logic, but to understand what is being implied, the meaning of those things, people cannot see. I mean, you can go down the street and you can give somebody down the street, John 3.16, you know, the old Romans road or what I call the Galilean alley. You go down the street and if you do enough times knocking at their door, they're going to be able to start repeating that to you. Doesn't mean they believe it. Nor does it mean they understand it. Why should I believe a man who was supposedly the son of God lived and died and that if I will believe in him, I will live with him forever? He died and was buried. And it's a fallacy that arose from the grave. See, that's the way the world thinks. That's man's wisdom. But that's not God's wisdom. Without the Spirit of God, you cannot know these things. And now he's going to make that very point. But which the Holy Spirit teaches comparing spiritual things with spiritual but the natural man, that lost man, the man of the wisdom of the world, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Which is, to me, what is funny about, I guess, publicly debating a lost person or an atheist. I don't care if I got a club and I'm beating him over the head. He's not going to get the argument. You're not going to convince him. You'd be better spending your time preaching to him than getting into a debate with him. Because at that point, the only thing you're going to do is see who comes out the winner of being the most popular speaker and debater in that situation. And as Pastor Riddell likes to say, it simply becomes a dog and pony show at that point. <clears throat> the natural man is not going to get it. You're, you may trap him in logic, but he's not even going to understand the trap. And you can say to him, but this is the logical conclusion. Yeah, you have a spiritual connection to the teaching of the word of God. To be able to draw those conclusions out, they make sense. You see the meaning that is behind it. He hears the words, 
doesn't get the meaning. It's spiritually concerned. He can't get it. Now, I haven't seen many people converted in a debate. I've seen them act out. I've seen them respond. Sometimes I think they respond in a way that is just absolutely hilarious. But the reality is, it's a mocking of the other side. This is what it means to me when you say these things. And then they act out and they act silly. They're mocking you. And the problem is the other side don't get the mocking. You don't get his understanding and he doesn't get your understanding. But he's trying to show you what he thinks he hears. And that's the problem. You have to develop a polemic that destroys his system and you leave him with nothing to declare because it is total irrationality from there. So he says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. You get it? The natural man can't know these things. What is the one thing that we look at when we look at the people of our church and we say to them, are you a Christian? What do you look at? One of the things I always look for is for them to come and say to me, you know, I was studying the word of God and, and God revealed this to me. <clears throat> did, I, did I get the right understanding here? And you go, yeah, that's good. I'll never forget when I was developing in my young years as I was going to college and I was working in a Christian bookstore that was run by a Reformed Presbyterian. He was actually in the OPC man. He was an elder and the pastor of the church. He was a wonderful man. And we went there for about eight to nine months, traveled 90 miles one direction to go to church. Phyllis and I would put our peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in a bag and we would eat after church, and we would take a nap. We took our pillows and our uh, coverings with us. Sometimes it was pretty cold up north, but we loved it. We wanted to be in the house of the Lord. We wanted to hear. But one of the things they said to me, I said, you know, I want to study eschatology. And they said, no, no, no buying books. Now, I worked in the bookstore. What do you mean I can't buy books? No, we really want you to look at some passages of Scripture and come back and tell us what you've come to. Conclusion on And I said, I can't buy the books and read? No, not yet. And I said, well, okay. So I began to study. I was a hardcore dispensationalist. I mean hardcore. Clarence Larkin hardcore. And all of a sudden, I began to say, well, I'm, I'm beginning to see this, this, and this. And they said, okay, well, that's historical pre-mill, but, but keep studying. Bring it back. Look at this, look at this, look at this, see what you see. I come back, and I said, well, I, I see this. Now, the pastor was all mill, and he went, ah, you're all mill. That's good. Stop. <laughs> 
The elder was supposed to be, and he said, keep coming. Keep coming, Ken. And eventually I came back and said, well, this is what I've really come to see now that I've studied all this. I'm not talking about I did it in a week or two weeks, probably a good two and a half months. Of course, it was post-millennial in my thinking. The elder was happy, the pastor. I think he was happy. But I said to him, they said, you know, you can have books now. And I said, wait a minute, why? I bought books on theology, everything else. Why this? And they were discussing the idea of me going to their seminary. And they said, the one thing we wanted to know is whether or not God was in you, working, and teaching you how to interpret the word. That's what we were looking for. And that's what we've seen. That's what I look for in other people. How is the word of God changing your life? You see, that's the real question. It's the important question that we have to deal with. But the world... Cannot understand. They don't even get the general revelation, let alone the special revelation. They can't even interpret the handiwork of God in the created order of things. Nor can he know them. He cannot know them. He could memorize what you said and repeat it, but he didn't know it. Because they are what? Spiritually discerned. You must have the spirit of God to be able to come to those conclusions. But he who is spiritual, what? Judges all things. I love that. People go, oh, you're judging. He who is spiritual, he who has the spirit of God, judges all things. Concerning himself and concerning others. Yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Because he is disciplined. He knows the truth. He applies the truth. The word of God to his life. He has spiritual discernment. But he who does not has no discipline in his life. He cannot judge. For he has no standard to judge by. Now, verse 16. For who has known the mind of the Lord? That he may instruct the Lord. Who has known God's mind that you could say, I don't, you know, I love this in the arguments between the Arminian and the Calvinist. The Arminian are almost saying God just didn't get it right. Which is a scary thought, if you think about it enough. Who has known the mind of the Lord to instruct him? Man, if there's one thing you want to learn from reading Job, you don't address the wisdom and counsel of God, words without knowledge. I love that phrase. You've come to question what God has declared 
with words that literally have no meaning. They're foolish. They're not spiritually discerned. They reflect only the wisdom of this world. But we, says Paul, but we have the mind of Christ. Between the spirit and the word and the spirit attesting to our spirit that what we have read from the word we know and know truthfully, there is the mind of Christ. And how important it is that we consider that. Well, I want us to begin with this great doctrine of divine revelation. For all that is and is revealed is revealed from God be a general revelation, as we call it, or special revelation. It's all God revealing himself. Our innate general knowledge and morality, and that which comes from the very mouth of God, that which is general, that which is from the mouth of God. God speaking directly, we call it special revelation. As a means of communicating what? The truth to me. That you may know the truth. Thus we state that here we have the divine authority who is revealing and speaking to us. He is speaking where we can communicate. We understand him. It's not gibberish. It has meaning. His words come with great meaning. I always thought about that in light of some of the movies you've seen that were depicting cowboys and Indians and the Indians of a go. You speak with true words. Well, that's the way God speaks to us. He gives us his truth. He doesn't give us something that looks like his truth because then we wouldn't know if it's his truth or not, because until you see the truth, you couldn't measure up the words that he gave you. He gave us the truth. He revealed his mind. He just told us that in the section we just looked at. Here we have in God revealing himself to us the divine truth, communicating to us in particular by special revelation, confirming even those things that man who is natural has got in the image of God, but he only confirms those truths to him when the Spirit of God enters him. And he has that ability of spiritual discernment. Thus then, we say, man is, at that point, thinking God's thoughts after him. <clears throat> the divines wrote on the nature of general and special revelation in chapter 1 of the Confession, the following statement. 
And that's where we'll have to end. We're just getting now to the exposition of this first chapter. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to take that long in my intro. But we're laying a foundation. Clearly, we're going to have more than one sermon. But we need to now look at section one. Think about it from this perspective. We've got a foundation. We have an idea of what we're going for. Understanding how God has revealed himself to us in the most meaningful, understanding way who confirms it by the Holy Spirit. Cannot confirm it to the natural man who does not have the Spirit of God within him. Oh, he doesn't confirm it. Not at all. He cannot. And you don't want to extend that concept of confirmation to natural man, or you're going to end up in a universal concept of redemption. All men will be saved. All men will come to the truth. That's not what we're talking about. The natural man can't get these things, but the spiritual man does. Not somebody who says, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Or I don't believe in organized religion, but I am religious. Which is basically saying, I'm pretty much an idiot and don't know what I believe. Being very polite. But we're going to look at what they laid out in their argument. These are the things that in order to talk about all the rest of theology all of the didactic and all of the praxis that deals with how to effectuate these things, both in our life, in the church, in our families, in society. It's going to be based off this first chapter. It becomes the most important doctrine to the church. So if you would, please pray as we seek to go through these things that I can get through them a little more quickly than today. But the fact that we do have an understanding of what it is we have. We literally have the word of God. That's why the Reformed and the Puritans said, you come to our church and when the preacher gets up and he reads and preaches from the word and when he's interpreting it and speaking it correctly, it's as if God himself is standing before you. It's not the messenger, but the message that is coming from the word by the power of the spirit to the people. That authoritative. The very word of God. The God who created all things, who holds all things together by the power of his thought, who thought it into existence. The God who has brought all that we have seen so far in history and whatever will come in the future. That creator, redeemer God has revealed his mind to us. This is greater than Star Trek. You know, that's 
you know, we've, oh, we love science. We'd be, I like to explore. Wouldn't you rather know the mind of the guy that created it all that you could do the exploration? Man gets hung up on the materialistic things of this world because of his depraved nature. And he doesn't see the reality of what really things being what they really are. You know, that's what scripture says. Not all things are what they appear to be. What would be more interesting? Knowing that God who so powerful could blink an eye and we're all gone? The whole universe disappears. Is that more interesting to you than space exploration? I mean, because if you're going to go out there, I'm going to tell you what you're going to find. A bunch of dead plants with a bunch of rocks and dust on them. Few minerals, maybe, and some may have water. This is the center of where he put life as we know it. And by that, I mean life created in his image and in the animal kingdom, the flora, the fauna that surrounds us. Which is more interesting to you? Which one really grips your mind? What do you want to know more than anything else? Do you want the truth? Or do you want to be hung up in the details? I'm telling you, the details will work themselves out when you know the true God. And you know his mind. And so let us pray, consider, please read chapter 1 very carefully. And next Lord's Day, we will go through it. Every phrase that is set forth in in chapter 1, section 1. We got about nine other sections to go through, so let's hope this doesn't spread out to a year in chapter 1. We want to keep it, but I want to cover these things because they are important to know. If you get this, you got the key. My friends, you have the key to the greatest knowledge that's ever been given to man. Shall we pray?